Mystery History Theater. When we left off, uh, we finished up with Booth, uh, with Boyd rather, and Harold uh, being caught and Boyd dying at uh, Garrett's farm. But having gone west across the countryside, the Virginia countryside, uh, after a while, we're, we're not only uh, Booth and Henson, but they were joined by Henry Johnson, who had served as kind of like, I don't know, you, you can't call him a butler, but I mean, he was like a, a Batman, if you will, in the term's original meaning, or a valet, perhaps. But Henry Johnson and Henson and Booth made, a, made out west uh, across the Virginia countryside to get to Harper's Ferry sort of through the back door. They went a good deal west to go back up north. So we're going to pick it up at a point where Booth is at Harper's Ferry. Isola understands that, of course, he's not dead. And she may not have realized he wasn't until when he showed up. That would have been a scene. But I want to just uh, kind of turn away for a second to a manuscript from which I read very early in this whole series from a, um, as he became to be known, John Henry Stevenson, but who was Michael O'Loughlin. Now, O'Loughlin was one of the four conspirators that was sentenced to life imprisonment down in the Dry Tortugas. I believe that's Fort Jefferson. And nobody got out of there, and very few spent more than five years. They just died. I mean, it was horrible. And he recounts how he was uh, incarcerated. All four, well, all three of the four, I should say, well, all four got out. Three of the four were pardoned. O'Loughlin supposedly died of yellow fever in 1867. He didn't. Because he was willing to work with the National Detective Police and with one of their officers in particular, a man by the name of Pollock, uh, his death was faked. And he was given a new identity. Actually, he was free to choose what he did, and he chose John Henry Stevenson. Now, the, the exchange was his freedom for pointing the NDP in the direction of Booth's uh, considerable cash of gold and silver and probably a lot of notes that was thought to be uh, somewhere up at the uh, Harper's Ferry Farm. Now, O'Loughlin did write this kind of memoir. It was very short. And he didn't want it published until his death. To me, it, it has the ring of truth because although somebody who would want to debunk it would say, well, what do you, you know, he was a conspirator and he's this and that, you know, and one of these character assassination jobs. But the point is, is that the guy was sorry for a lot of things. He couldn't apologize too much for, for the whole Lincoln thing because he walked away for the most part. But he did listen and he did consort with Booth when Booth was talking about taking certain actions. So he didn't want to prosper by this. Like um, what we heard before with Bernard's uh, kind of uh, memoir, again, read very early, they had more to say but didn't say it. And that just drives you crazy because you like to hear what the more was that they had to say. So for the most part, it looked like O'Loughlin slash Stevenson had made the best use of his life after the fact, 
repented for what had happened and try to live his best life as he could. And he left this behind, and I don't think, uh, well, you be the judge. Uh, to me, he could have taken the opportunity to do a lot of dirty stuff, and he didn't. He just called it the way it was. And after he passed, this uh, was, quote, made public, but, I mean, who knows about it, really? Nobody knew about it. Uh, and that happened in about 1890. I read from this before, but if you came in anywhere after the reading of it the first time, uh, I'm skipping over a lot till we get to a point where we can pick up the trail of at least Booth, but now you have Isola back in the mix, and it gets to be very much the stuff of an adventure tale. Uh, just going back to something interesting he said about the whole, you know, Booth and all these plots. Wilkes laid out the plot. The president, vice president, and secretary of state were to be kidnapped and spirited from the country. Then a provisional government would be designated by Congress. Wilkes emphasized the importance of keeping the nation in the dark as to the fate of the three kidnapped so that Congress could act. Now understand, it was supposedly in the plans of the businessmen who had Booth originally as the point person for the abduction plot and then deposed him in favor of Boyd. At that point, Booth was supposed to be a facilitator more than anything else, and that was to get people through the Maryland countryside. There was a ship waiting in the Patuxent. There was a ship waiting in the Potomac. The ship in uh, the Patuxent was supposed to take Lincoln and Seward, if that was the case, um, and Johnson. They were to go out into the Chesapeake, and I don't think they were going to leave the country. That's one of the variations. It might have been on the, on the board but they were going to take him at least down into the south, which got to be a more difficult situation after Richmond fell because you can't go to Richmond now. I mean, this is not a stronghold of the Confederacy after the Union already took it. So there, so there are different things being stated here. All right, so, uh, oh, yeah, and the other thing is about Congress. Congress, I didn't think, well, according to the other plot, wasn't necessarily going to create a provisional government, although, in a sense, they would be provisional de facto themselves, and they would act in the capacity of the executive and get the contracts pushed through that Lincoln had, frankly, put a kibosh on. If, if that money and goods could at least go through, there was nothing lost, and even though the whole deal was now done from this point on, at least the money that was floating out there, a considerable amount in the millions, would at least uh, be paid and the, and the goods provided. And then after a, a while, of course, Lincoln would be freed with Seward and Johnson, and all would be well again, and Congress could go back to its regular duties. Uh, let's see, Wilkes told us that there was more than one quarter million dollars available to pay for the act, which is the, the kidnapping. He also pointed out that we would all be heroes in both the North and the South. I later talked with Wilkes and learned more of the details. A troop of cavalry would be raised and drilled in southern Maryland. They would be outfitted with stolen federal uniforms, arms, and equipment. They would be drilled to perfection and would be in charge of a lieutenant in a stolen Union uh, a uniform. The president would be kidnapped from the theater by having one of his aides uh, to go to the theater during intermission and calling the president to the War Department. Funny they would use War Department because he was the Secretary of War, Stanton. The troop of cavalry would then appear and furnish uh, escort for the president. They would then go by the home of the Secretary of State and summon him into some carriage. The vice president who lived at Kirkwood House would be summoned by a messenger and would be forced into a carriage while on his way to the War Department. They would all three 
then be taken through southern Maryland to a waiting ship on Chesapeake Bay. Arrangements, arrangements have been made to allow the ship to get out of the bay as well as to allow the carriages to get out of Washington. It could be anticipated that it would be several hours before the three would be missed. By this time, it would be hard to tell where they had gone. And that ship in the Potomac was supposed to take the conspirators. So those, just the sparse few that were needed to uh, escort Lincoln, Seward, and Johnson to the ship waiting out by Benedict's Landing in the Patuxent would take him away. Now, Bloodworth Island was one of the places they thought of taking Lincoln because nobody eh, be kind of overlooked. Uh, Bloodworth Island was kind of like in the middle of some dark, um, embedded, what do they call it, fen. So that was one of the options. And of course, then the other conspirators who were involved, everybody would just jump on the ship in the Potomac and get out of Dodge that way. I do not know exactly what went wrong at Ford's Theater that night. I was where I should have been on that night, as was Sam Arnold. Sam was who had taken care of the disablement of the telegraph at Old Point Comfort. But this he did not do, and yet the telegraph did go down, so somebody did it. And they think it might be uh, Major Eckert. This did not figure in the failure, however, since the plane had gone so completely awry before the failure of the Fort Monroe telegraph was needed that this one small failure was as insignificant. Uh, the first thing that seems to have gone wrong was that the troops from southern Maryland got drunk when they got to Washington, and only six showed up at the appointed place. These six were uniformed and equipped, and the, quote, lieutenant led them to Ford's Theater. But the major, and in parentheses, he was a genuine major and close to Lincoln, and in parentheses, did not come. Wilkes decided to go ahead with himself assisting. When the lieutenant and his six men moved in to escort the president's carriage, a captain who had already been assigned the task of guarding the president, president ordered them away. They had no choice but to obey. Beyond this point, I do not know what happened. The story told uh, as fact by many who were there seems fantastic and so unlike what was planned. I have always thought that perhaps Wilkes was so frustrated, in parentheses, this was the fifth time that the plan had gone to the brink of success only to be called off, end of parentheses, that he completely lost his reason and killed the president. This still would not account for the attempt against Seward. That's a very good point. Again, this was, I do not believe in any way, shape, or form, Booth was doing this because he got pissed off. Now, whether he planned to kill the president while everybody else thought he was being abducted is another thing because there would have been bounty money for Booth if he killed Lincoln. And if he killed Seward, remember, those are the only two that were mentioned in the letter between Barnes and Watson as to having, uh, they were thought to have more or less double-crossed the, uh, the pork for cotton people on both sides of the Atlantic. And those were the two that Barnes identified as being the ones that had to be removed. There's never any talk about Johnson, no talk about Stanton, just those two. And the only attacks that occurred that night were on those two. So, as, as was stated in the letter, um, between Barnes and Watson, were their friends in Liverpool the ones who wanted to see uh, Lincoln hit? You know, not just taken care of, but perhaps hit. We'll never know. But, as O'Loughlin has stated here, uh, it, yeah, it wouldn't account uh, for the attempt against Seward. The only two mentioned in that letter, and the only two had attempts made on it. Could have been coincidence in a way. Yeah, it might have. But, you know, 
money reigns, the money men are the ones who get heads of state killed. In any event, the ship was waiting at Benedict's Landing on the bay, and a seaman had been sent to Dr. Mudds to act as guide and contact man. Now, that's interesting, because of all that Mudds said about not being involved, and da 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 he was known to be one of the doctors on the trail, as they said. And, of course, he went to another one, Booth did, in Virginia, Dr. Stewart, went to a doctor in Stannardsville, and I think one other. Um, because he had to have his uh, leg uh, continually attended to. Okay, the, Dr. Mudd was a member of the doctor's line through southern Maryland. This was a group of doctors along the line through Maryland who would take in southerners who were going south, mainly from prisons from which they had escaped. Dr. Mudd was not a part of the kidnap conspiracy, but he would give help to anyone who needed it, and so it was known that if the seamen came to Mudd's, he would be allowed to wait uh, wait there and be fed in the meantime. I have always wondered just what happened in the President's box in Ford's Theater that night. Booth was not supposed to be actively involved in the plot. He was to help by smoothing the movements at the theater and was the man in charge of the plot at the theater. Once the President went to his carriage, Wilkes planned to go to the alley in the rear of the theater, mount his waiting horse, and set out for Benedict's. He had already sent his clothes and personal possessions to the Bahamas. All right, now remember, that's also a British territory. He had arranged for extensive bank credits in England. He planned to go to England in about a year. Isola and his daughter would join him there. I was to assist his wife in arranging for the shipment of the gold and silver out of the country. I was to have one-third. Things did not go as planned. The first thing which went wrong was that the man from Maryland, uh, the men from Maryland who were to pose as soldiers, and here we go again, got drunk and did not appear at the appointed hour. Then the major did not appear at Ford's, as he was supposed to do. Now, you've got somebody close to Lincoln, a major in the, the Army, and he doesn't show up, but he was mentioned as being involved, and yet you cannot find out who this is through any kind of uh, depositions of anyone involved, uh, those especially who were deposed to speak at the, um, uh, the tribunal, uh, for the Aiken conspirators, and then later on with John Surratt, where more stuff came out, but obviously too late. So the major doesn't show. Now the question is, what happened to Captain Boyd in this whole deal? Did he realize this whole thing has gone south? Excuse the pun. And then decided, I'm out of here? Finally, the other officer who was at Ford's lost his nerve after so much had gone awry and refused to go through with it. He went berserk when Booth told him that they would proceed, and then he attacked Wilkes with a knife. This is interesting. This much I know. So we got, a, we got a dust up between Booth and somebody else who doesn't want any part of this thing. Now think back to what, to, uh, what was um, read from a newspaper account with the, um, the soldier Die, D-Y-E, who was out and about and thought he heard Booth and someone else talking about doing something with the president during the intermission between Acts 2 and 3. So stuff was going on out there in the street as it pertained to what Booth wanted to do. Uh, as all this was starting to go, you know, again, <laughs> disappear on him. I mean, the, this whole plot was dissipating. But uh, this is interesting that that, that, um, <laughs> that John Wilkes Booth was attacked with a knife by an officer who uh, lost his nerve. Okay, this much I know. Beyond this point, I do not know what happened, but I do know that the popular version of the deed is far from correct. 
At any rate, Wilkes ended up on the stage with a broken leg, and the story from there to Dr. Mudd's is about correct. The story of the arrest of Mrs. Surratt, Dr. Mudd, Sam Arnold, myself, and others is well known. Our treatment is somewhat known, but no human being can ever realize the terrible humanities we suffered. I would not attempt to describe them, for they only bring back the terrible nightmares which have possessed me for many years. Dr. Mudd, Sam Arnold, Spangler, and I were transferred to Fort Jefferson uh, on the Dry Tortugas for what was supposed to be the rest of our lives. This was not expected to be for very long, for few lasted more than five years on that hellish island. And, and I'll just go through this much. I was placed in a cubicle, which was about two feet by two feet by five feet. This was made of bricks with stone floor and a wooden door and no window. It was completely dark and during the day as hot as the hinges of hell. And during the night it was rather cool, but with the rising of the sun it became an oven again. So we'll leave all the other really unbelievable details of what they had to go through. I mean, you, thankfully you probably go crazy before the whole thing, you know, before you died. At any rate, um, this National Detective Police asset, Pollock, and you've heard about him before, approached O'Loughlin with a plan. Uh, the exchange was, again, O'Loughlin's freedom uh, in exchange to point Pollock. And I have a feeling that this, would not, this money would not have found its way back to the National Detective Police and to the government. But at any rate, uh, because Pollock was involved uh, principally with the demise of Lafayette Baker and also uh, apparently with the uh, seduction of uh, Baker's wife. So uh, O'Loughlin agrees, okay, his death is faked, takes a new identity, and then uh, they talk about how he'll help lead Pollock to the uh, gold and silver. Uh, and we'll pick it up here. Pollock, ha Pollock had Isola under constant survey, and now I, too, was constantly watched. It was obvious that Pollock did not trust us. Three days after I moved into my room, I went to visit Isola. This is in Baltimore. He got the address from Pollock. Uh, O'Loughlin took a room about three blocks away, and now uh, we get the, uh, the gears uh, meshing. And also, O'Loughlin said that he doubted that after he helped them do what do what he, uh, he was free to do. He didn't think he'd live long to tell about it. And as you know, we said there's a body count around a lot of, if not the principals, but also the ancillary individuals um, around the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, he went to visit Isola. She wasn't in. He left his card. And he writes, I wrote on it that it was necessary to see here. I signed it, J. Stevenson, and left it with a lady who was there. I told her that I would return that night. I then returned to my room, stopping by a saloon long enough to buy a bottle of whiskey. When I got to my room, I made a big pretense of drinking myself to sleep. I poured about half of the contents of the bottle out and settled in my bed, taking care to snore like a drunken man. Within about a half an hour, the door opened and Pollock and another man came into my room. They completely searched the room and took care to go through all my clothes and luggage. Then they left. And, of course, he's feigning sleep. After they had left, I arose, dressed, and stuffed blankets into my bed so that it would appear occupied and left by the way of the window. I went back to Isola's house and entered the second floor by means of an unlocked window. I came down the stairs and almost scared the colored woman to death. She was about to run a hairpin into me when I made her understand that I wanted to talk to Mrs. Booth. She said, 
quote, them that sneaks around in this world like you does ain't up to, does ain't up to be up to no good, whatever, all right. Uh, this was, quote, Aunt Sarah Johnson, a real loyal and intelligent African who many times risked her life for Isola Booth and her family. Her son was Booth's valet. There you go. I believe that his name was James. No, it was Henry. So both uh, Johnsons here, Aunt Sarah, um, attended to Isola, and Henry attended to John. I talked with Isola for several hours. She was amazed to learn that I was alive and out of prison. She pressed me for details of my escape and of the plans for the future. I told her that I would like to help her get the money from the farm in Virginia, which is actually in West Virginia, <clears throat> and then I planned to go to Europe to live. It was then that she told me that Booth was not dead. She said that after the assassination that Wilkes had come to the farm and had recuperated from the broken leg. Here you go. So even O'Loughlin didn't know that Booth was alive. He had then left with um, his Negro valet and another man and made his way to Canada. That would be Johnson and Henson. From there, she did not know where he went, but she had heard from him in September. Now, this is probably, this meeting is taking place probably in very early October, 1867. Now, Lachlan was supposedly dead uh, in, in the, uh, the Dry Tortugas in September of 1867. And... Uh, <clears throat> This is now early October, so when she refers, Isola does, to having talked to Booth in September, I'm assuming it was the last month. So now we are what? We are two years away from the assassination, and Booth is still kind of pinballing around the country. All right, picking it up uh, in um, O'Loughlin slash Stevenson's account. He had planned to meet her in San Francisco in the spring, so that would be spring 1868. He wanted her to meet him there with the money. We agreed to go to the farm and get it, and then I would accompany her to San Francisco. This would take me far away from Pollock and give me a new start. We agreed on a plan. I would call on Azola the following day and take her out to dine. We would make plans while Pollock's men overheard us. We would plan to go to New York while really planning to go to California. In our New York plans, we set the date of January 5th. But on the evening of December 23rd, it began to snow quite heavily, and so that night at about 10 o'clock, I brought two excellent saddle horses into the alley at the rear of Isola's house. Remember, this is in Baltimore. I had retired after dinner to my room with a bottle, uh, an apparent habit that I established for the benefit of po Pollock's detectives, and he had the reason to believe that I was drunk and settled, settled in for the night. At 10.30, 10.30 p.m., Isola, who was dressed as a boy and I on horseback, made our way out Frederick Road in a blinding snowstorm. We took with us just enough clothes to last until we could get the money from the farm and catch the train west. We were both leaving our past behind us. Isola had left her daughter with Aunt Sarah, who would follow later by way of Boston. We had with us about $1,500 in gold coin and greenbacks. It would provide the means of transportation for ourselves and the gold. By 5 in the morning, we had gotten to Ellicott's Mills in Howard City, uh, Howard County, excuse me. Uh, the going was so rough that by now the horses could hardly keep their footing. We came to an inn and we turned into the stable. I rubbed the horses down good and gave them oats. By this time the innkeeper was up and, quote, Johnny, uh, Isola's new name as a boy, and I had breakfast. The storm was still going strong, so we rested the whole day. By nightfall the snow had stopped and carriages were beginning to break the trail. I told the innkeeper how we had to get to Cumberland before the end of the week, and therefore, my, quote, son, 
and I would have to press on through most of the night. He gave me the name of an inn at Hancock where we could get lodging uh, the next night. I thanked him, and we left. It was hard on Isola, but she was spunky about it. We knew that it was only a matter of time before Pollock discovered that we were gone and started tracking us. Within several days, he was bound to find out which way we had gone and be after us. I had made a serious mistake in the selection of horses. I knew that I would have a good uh, have to have good horses for the coming month or so, and I therefore bought two of the best that I could find. They were such excellent horses that wherever we went, anyone who knew anything of horse flesh remembered them. Everyone commented about the beautiful um, chestnuts we had. I soon began to realize that this was definitely in Pollock's favor. We arrived in Frederick on Saturday evening, and both of us were exhausted. We got a room and spent Saturday night and Sunday resting. On Monday, I bought a two-horse spring wagon with harness, and by 9 o'clock, Joe and I were on the road to Harper's Ferry. Well, now it's Joe. Was it John? Okay. The roads were clear, uh, but somewhat muddy in the morning, but by noon, the weather turned cold and the mud froze. Just about dark, it began to snow again. We kept going and arrived at the farm just about daylight on Tuesday. This is Harper's Ferry now. We, we uh, stabled the horses and fed them. Then we settled down in the back of the wagon and slept until dark. When we awoke, I, I fixed the fire in the small hearth in the carriage house and prepared some food. Isola was practically exhausted from the rigors of the past few days. I was only three months away from, from the grueling torments of prison, and I was aching in every joint and muscle, but we had to keep going if we were to escape Pollock and his men. Now, for the first time, I felt that we were safe for a while. Pollock could not have known about the farm, or he would have searched there, and that means searched there before. Booth had never titled the farm in his real name, for he wanted no one to know about it, nor about Isola, for that matter, and they had used non-de-plumes while there. There, uh, there were no close neighbors, and people in that part of the country left others alone for the most part. It is doubtful whether anyone knew uh, that the actor Booth had ever had a home in their midst. I found two large steamer trunks in the smokehouse. I removed them into the carriage house and began to take the, tri uh, the trivia from them. I saw that there were many uh, letters from and to Booth in them, letters from Wilkes to Isola and letters from other women to Wilkes. I tried to conceal the letters to Wilkes from her, but she just smiled and said, I know about them. I know what kind of man he is, but I love him and would rather share him than not have him at all. We burned all the contents of both trunks. Isola then told me where to find the money. There was a leather saddlebag secreted in the wall behind a closet in the top floor room on the north side of the main house. I went into the house and soon found the closet. I broke the wall open and found the bag. In it were treasury bonds. There were bundles of them, all in thousand-dollar uh, denominations. They looked new. I took them to the carriage house. Next, there were gold coins. They were sewn up in a, a sailcloth and sailcloth bags and buried under the kitchen. I took a shovel to the house and began to dig. I soon found several bags of gold coins. I carried two bags to the carriage house, and as I turned to leave, I fainted. When I awoke, Isola had me wrapped in blankets and a large fire going in the hearth, but I was still in a raging chill. I seemed to have had a very high fever and was very weak and ill. For three days and nights I was sick, and then I began to recover. My fever left me weak and depleted. Isola nursed me back to health in a most amazing fashion. It had begun to snow again, and a raging blizzard was in, the, uh, was in progress most of that time that I was sick. Food had begun to get short, and so she had Im improvised. She made uh, oat gruel from the oats we brought for the horses. She made the meat go farther than planned by making stews and soup. She had found some potatoes in the root cellar. By the end of the week, I again felt like starting uh, with the chore of assembling the gold coins into the trunks for shipment. 
It was still snowing uh, intermittently, and there were huge drifts across the fields and roads. I brought bags of gold coins to the carriage house and then packed them into the trunks. There were also silver coins, but I did not pack them so long as there was gold. I was amazed at the quantity of gold and silver coins of all sizes and, and nationalities which we found. I soon had the trunks so heavily loaded that I could not load them onto the wagon, and then I had to unload them of their contents, get them onto the wagon, and reload them with the coins. We soon became aware of another problem. No matter how we packed the coins, if the trunk was delivered a quick, uh, a quick blow of even slight pressure, the coins would jangle. We tried many ways, and we were unable to overcome this problem. I finally became aware of one certainty. I would have to repack the coins in some manner so as to do away with the jingle. I finally came to the conclusion that the safest was to melt them down. Um, this not only changed the nature of the coins, but it also took away the jingles. The jingle. The following morning, I took several bags of gold coins to the blacksmith's shop and started a fire in the forge. I then discovered that the bellows were damaged. I used my raincoat to repair the damage. I found an iron pot in which I melted the coins. I made up dirt molds from, uh, dirt molds from a pattern that I uh, whittled out of wood. The bars then cast, when cast, weighed about 20 pounds each. During the next several days, I cast the gold coins into bars. I just want to tell you, this is a transcript that was typewritten also before uh, the 20th century. And some um, uh, handwritten edits were made. Uh, let's see, okay. Uh, during the next several days, I cast the gold coins into bars. These I packed into the trunks, wrapped the canvas from the bags around them. I could not get all the bars into the trunks and had to bury them. I soon realized that there was a fortune in gold and silver here, not to mention the bonds and currency. To this day, I cannot imagine where it all came from. By this time, it had stopped snowing, and it was in the middle of February. I had gone into uh, Halltown to the store for supplies. I had ridden one of the horses, and one of the local loafers, which always congregate around a country store, remarked what a beautiful horse I was riding and began to ask questions about which way I came and other things. I made the answers as general as possible for fear that Pollock would eventually inquire in this area and might find where we had been. When the fellow became uncomfortably inquisitive, I made up a story of being interested in trapping in the area. I even bought some traps which the store owner had hanging there. I finally made it out of the store and back to the farm. Naturally, I left heavy tracks in the snow, and it would have been a simple chore for anyone interested to have tracked me back there. I therefore became anxious to get away from the farm. I was unable to take nearly all the gold and none of the silver. The only thing was to hide it. This I did. I removed the boards from the feed room in the carriage house and dug a hole. I put this hole... I put into this hole all of the silver coins which I had dug up and the gold coins which I had not melted. I buried the gold bars under the stall in the blacksmith shop. I did not know if I would ever be able or would need to return for the remaining riches which we were leaving behind. Isola and I discussed the possibility of getting a larger wagon so that we could take all the stuff, but we finally decided uh, that by taking only a slice of the loaf that we might have the chance to enjoy the sandwich whereas if we waited every minute courted disaster. Pollock was bound to find us if we tarried. It had been almost two months since we had left Baltimore, and we had been blessed with terrible weather, which made finding us almost impossible. But with the thaw which would come, um, also would come detection, unless we were well aware or well on our way to California. The next morning we left the farm at daybreak. Our wagon was loaded with two steamer trunks of uh, 
large proportions, and the springs were greatly depressed. The horses at times had difficulty pulling it when we struck snowdrifts. We planned to catch the train at Harper's Ferry, but when we got within sight of the station, there were several horses tied up to the rail, and we saw men inside talking with the ticket agent, and they had that look of detectives. We decided to go into Frederick and not to hurry, and not to tarry, rather, excuse me. We spent the night at an inn about 10 miles from Frederick. This is Frederick, Maryland. In the morning, when I went out to hitch up the team, the stableman commented on how heavy the trunks were. He remarked that I must have gold in those trunks, and then he laughed. I had the hardest time laughing with him, for in spite of my action, I knew that if one of Pollock's men would ask, he would remember the incident. We loaded our bags onto the train at Frederick without detection. On arriving at Frederick, I discovered that the schedules were such as to be entirely impractical for our use, and so we continued on north to Harrisburg. This would be Pennsylvania. The weather had turned warm and the sun came out bright. It made the trip less rigorous, but at the same time more difficult. When we reached the ford across the Monarchy River, uh, I think that's wrong. It's Monacy or Monacy. Yeah, that would be the Monacy River. Monacy, M-O-N-O-C-A-C-Y. It's a river that runs at that point north-south uh, and um, east of Frederick. There was a woman who transcribed all of this. So, All right, again, when we reached the ford across the Monacy River, I could see that the stream had swollen. It was still passable, but the approaches were muddy, and with the thin-wheeled wagon and extremely heavy load, it began to cut into the mud. By the time we reached the middle of the stream, we were mired in um, so that the horses could not move the wagon. I realized that we would have to lighten the load. I stepped into the freezing water and picked Isola up from, uh, from the seat. I carried her to the shore and went back to lead the team out. They still could not pull it. I quickly decided to sacrifice the butter from the slices of bread as I opened the back trunk and began to remove gold bars. I threw them over into deep water and did not look back as they sank from sight. I do not know how much I had taken out, perhaps 12 or even more. When I shouted to the horses and they started forward, uh, I pushed with all my might and the wagon moved out of the stream. I wonder if anybody ever went looking for that or if anybody ever found it. I closed the trunk and we drove off. I was soaked and chilled to the bone and we had a long trip ahead of us. We continued on for 10 miles or more before I dared step and build a, stop and build a fire. By the time I did, I was so thoroughly chilled that my fever had returned. And so we then went on for several miles before, uh, more to an inn where we acquired a room. I became very uh, febrile and delirious during the night, and Isola had her hands full. I tried to leave the room without clothes, and she had to call the innkeeper. When he saw her, he realized that she was a woman and not a boy. He became quite upset and threatened to put us out. She then told him a story about her father was a mountain man in West Virginia and how we had run off to be, uh, to be married. She withdrew the marriage license, which we had gotten for just such an occasion. So they had forged it. Uh, yeah, and he says, I had forged the minister's name, and Aunt Sarah had written in an illegible hand as witness. The innkeeper was touched and helped her subdue me, but um, he even sent his wife up with some medicine, which put me to sleep. When I awoke the next morning, I felt terrible and was unable to arise. For three days and nights, we stayed until there stay there until I was able to travel. At the end of that time, I knew that we must be gone or were courting certain detection. Early in the morning, we left the inn with the promise of the innkeeper and his wife. They would write to them from Boston and tell them how we were doing. They also promised that they would greatly mislead any detectives who came looking. I have always wondered if they ever realized that West Virginia mountain men do not send detectives to bring back errant daughters. <laughs> That's good. And this isn't the same inn we are talking about before, but... Uh, O'Loughlin and Isola are playing out she's a boy through all this time 
We arrived in Harrisburg several days later and got our tickets west. Our trunks weighed in at about 600 pounds, much to the surprise of the station man. He said, Mister, you must have gold in them trunks, to which I replied, Mister, they got lots of gold in California. The thing that they need and don't have is books. I aim to trade books for gold. I'll have trunks of gold when I come back. We both laughed, and he said, Dang, if I don't think you will. We arrived in San Francisco on April 18th, and again, this is 1868. The trip had been hard on both of us, and we needed rest badly. Isola uh, was now dressed as the lady she was, and we were traveling as man and wife. We took a room in one of the best hotels in San Francisco and prepared to make contact with J.B. Wilkes, as Wilkes was known. So now he's, now at this point in time, and in San Francisco, he may have gotten his passport uh, in the name of John Byron Wilkes, because that's uh, the city to which he went, and the last, I think that was the um, departure point for Isola and Booth to uh, steam west to India. We placed an ad in the personal uh, column, which read, Johnny, come home, your mother is ill. This was a signal that we had arrived. The next day, a messenger brought a note which gave directions on how to contact him, meaning Booth. I suddenly became aware of the fact that I did not want Azola to go. I did not want to see Wilkes, for by this time I loathed him, first for getting me involved in a thing which put me through the terrible ordeal which I had suffered, and secondly, because I did not want to give up Azola to him. He did not love her, but only wanted the gold and money which she brought, and for the first time I admitted that I did indeed love her. She was beautiful and wonderful, and the past months, although rigorous, had been bearable because of her. She had nursed me through the terrible fevers that I had, I had, and had restored me to health again. She had furnished the encouragement without which I would have, been, I would have given up and despaired. I then suggested to Isola that we send half of the gold to Wilkes and go north with the rest. She was understanding, but said no. She still loved him, Booth, in spite of everything. And as she went to meet him, I took one-third of the gold from the trunks and packed it into wooden boxes and prepared to go north to Sacramento. I purchased a two-horse team and a spring wagon, and when she returned, I told her what I planned to do. She kissed me goodbye and took a package from her bag. She handed it to me, and later when I opened it, I found it contained $20,000 in greenbacks. I felt San Francisco. I left San Francisco at about noon and arrived in Sacramento two days later. I took a room in Sacramento and rested for several weeks. The boxes of gold were under my bed, and no one paid any mind since strangers were always plentiful in California, and it was never healthy to ask too many questions about anyone's background. Now, O'Loughlin slash Stevenson goes on about uh, some of the business ventures he had there, which uh, revolved around uh, gold. Uh, and suffice to say that he did quite well, but this is kind of interesting, and I just want to throw this in. Um, he had a partner by the name of Bailey. He writes, through contacts in New York, Bailey found out that there was going to be an attempt to buy up gold in New York and that the government of President Grant had promised to remain aloof to the manipulation. Well, heck, that goes on all the time, like now. Uh, at the same time, there were, there were men in California who were planning to buy up gold on contracts so as to use the incident for speculation. Anyway, they went through it, and the bottom line is, the true bottom line is, that um, Stevenson profited uh, by a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, and this was on September 26, 1869. He said, my luck held, and I was a wealthy man. On October 5th, again, 1869, I received a letter from Isola. She was in San Francisco and needed help. I took the next stage there and found her ill, destitute, and without money. She, she uh, seemed dazed and so very thin and wan. I uh, brought her to Sacramento several days later. I bought a house and moved her into it. It was a beautiful home, and I hoped that she would resume 
our life, we could resume our life as man and wife. She seemed so far away and so dazed. She hardly ate at all, and she just sat and stared out the window. It was several weeks before she would show any interest in anything. One night she had a nightmare. I heard her screaming and went to her. She sobbed uncontrollably in my arms and then told me a most incredible story. All right, so keep in mind this is October 1869. Uh, she and Booth had left in April of 1868. So this is almost a, um, a year and a half later. All right, now for the incredible story. She, meaning Isola, had met Booth aboard a ship in the harbor of San Francisco. Seamen were sent to bring the trunks to the ship, and they sailed immediately. The master was Captain Scott, and the ship the Indian Queen. Now, I don't know if that's the Indian Queen that was hanging out. Um, I forget which, you know, we had the Indian Prince, we had the Indian Queen. I don't know if it's the same Indian Queen. I think it is. And what's more interesting, too, is that its captain, uh, a Scott, I believe it's John Scott, about which we'll hear later, uh, is related to Kate Scott, uh, who was a, uh, once again, a paramour of Booth. Stevenson goes on to, to mention that um, all right, we, we know that the master was um, Captain Scott. Uh, we assume that this Indian queen is the same one that was involved in the uh, kidnapping plot. This was the one that was in the Patuxent. Uh, he said she, meaning the Indian queen, was a brig, and that fits, that's what it was, and quite seaworthy with a good captain, which is John Scott since I knew him well from my days in Baltimore. So, here, I mean, there's not an irony, really, because what do you do but trust those who you've kind of been in cahoots with before? So Booth knew of, well, Booth definitely knew, in the biblical sense, Kate Scott. He must have known of, of John Scott, and so did um, uh, Stevenson in his time as O'Loughlin. So this is the same guy. All right. Now, you have to wonder sometimes, too, I'm thinking, does, does the captain, John Scott, know that Booth had hooked up with one of his relatives, um, who I believe never really did marry. And here Booth is with this other woman, and does that mean anything to Scott? You know, I don't know. He could have cared less, perhaps. All right, the ship was about 200 tons burthen and came from Nova Scotia. They sailed with the tide on April 21st, 1868. They went west and south, and the voyage was wonderful for the Booths. After many months, there was a mutiny, and Booth and Captain Scott were both killed by the crew. Isola was put adrift in a whaleboat and was later picked up by a British ship. The ship had brought her to San Francisco. Now, I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you talk about being found out in the Pacific Ocean, and she was adrift for how long? And what's not mentioned here is that we're looking at about what? They leave in April. So that's what, seven months to the end of the year. And here she is back in San Francisco 10 months later into 1869. So we're looking at like 17 months, 16 months, a year and a half or something like that. What happened in the meantime? And, you know, there's something missing here. Some people think that she had gone out, didn't like India, and said, I'm out of here. And then he supposedly brought her back. This cannot be the same voyage, I don't believe, even though, you know, I understood that ships didn't move all that fast in those days. Could have been the singular trip out to what was supposed to be the destination of India, because now John Byron Wilkes, as a British citizen, was going to an, a British uh, territory, which would be uh, India. After she had told me this and began to eat better, but she was not the same as before, she asked me to take her to Baltimore so that she could see her daughter. I agreed reluctantly. I told her that we would bring her daughter to California and be a happy family, but she would not agree. I wanted to come to Baltimore by ship, but she said she could not stand to go that way for obvious reasons. And then she told me that she was going to have a baby. 
I cleared up my business as quickly as possible, and leaving, uh, well, he left some stuff behind with his business. We'll move on from there. Uh, Isola came home to the east. We arrived in Baltimore just before Christmas, and Isola gave birth to a son on February 22nd, Washington's birthday, 1870. So uh, let's see. She was probably impregnated somewhere in the middle of 1868, May, June, something like that, nine months. So Booth got right to it as soon as she got on board. So through this whole time, she's pregnant as well. All right, we gave the boy, him, my name, which I had chosen, John Harry Stevenson. In later years, he went by the name of Harry, Henry, Harry Jerome, for both he and his mother shied away from the name John, particularly since he bore such a resemblance to his father, John Wilkes Booth. After the birth of Harry, I took a back seat in the life of Isola. We seemed to quarrel uh, whenever we were together, and so I moved to Boston. I was reasonably well off, and I received regular amounts from my investments in California. And then one day I received a letter from Fry, and it goes on to what happened with his business uh, dealings. Let's go back to what happened uh, with Isola and that trip. He uh, in, uh, Apparently in 1877, though, this should, go, should be mentioned, that Stevenson met with Harry who he kind of said was, Stevenson said was his son. And so they meet just before, well, about a number of years before Stevenson's death. I think he figured out, he, to the time in one's life when you want to start to tie up loose ends. So uh, they had met in uh, Delmonico's in New York. I said, Harry had been disappointed being on, by me on several occasions, and I want him to know that it could not be helped. Uh, so when they met for breakfast, um, I said goodbye and told him who his father was. He then told me that he had known since reading the diary of his mother. He told me that his mother wrote in her diary that the crew of the ship had mutinied in order to get the gold. They had killed Captain Scott, and when they put her adrift, she had seen Booth lying face down on the deck and covered with blood. She knew that he was dead. Sometime later in the mid-70s, Harry had talked uh, with a Mr. Purdy who had mentioned that John B. Wilkes had written a letter to someone in the theater and that the handwriting had looked amazingly like Booth's. Harry believed that Booth had not died on that ship, and he did not. I do not know, nor do I really care. Booth never gave me anything but grief and heartaches. Before Isola went to San Francisco to meet him, she was warm and tender to me and showed me passion as no other woman had ever done. After she returned, she was dead inside. She had lost her entire spirit. She was only half a woman. For this I could never forgive him. I knew that there are many who, if they read this garbled missive, will say that I am a fraud. They will be right, but not because of what I write, but of what I did. The world would have been better off had I never been born, but born I was, and die I shall, and judged shall we all be. I have many times atoned for the many sins that I have committed, and I know that I have been promised forgiveness. If being sorry helps, then I am assured relief. There is much that I would relate, but it would do no good. See, here's the stuff that you could find out, but you're not going to. And I'm not bitter and go to my reward willingly since my life has been difficulty and I am so sorry. Dated October 15th, 1886. And this was added by Lolly Eaton who did the transcription, the typing. Uh, Mr. Stevenson died at 5.35 a.m. on June 23, 1890 at the farm of Miss Emma and Elmira Brandt in Muscatine County, Iowa. He had been ill for such a long time and he long so for death. He was buried in a small plot which he had picked out himself. It overlooked the Mississippi River and gave a beautiful view. I have visited his grave almost daily since his passing, and a headstone has been erected. It reads, John Henry Stevenson, 1838 to 1890. So the mystery here is 
actually, the mystery is solved. I mean, John Wilkes Booth did not die uh, in the tobacco barn on Garrett's farm. He didn't. Stanton didn't want any part of him. And I only conjecture that Booth's leaving behind several items. And you don't forget him. You know, that's, that's what I'm saying. He, he could not have left Gambo Creek and forgotten him. Were they spooked out of Gambo Creek and he, and he had to leave him get, and hightail it? Well, maybe. But, you know, outside of that, which doesn't seem to be the case, I believe he, left, he lightened his load and left the diary behind so that Stanton would know that the goods that he had on Stanton were now out of the picture since Stanton or someone ripped out a whole section. But as you heard, at least on one occasion, the diary or diaries of Boyd were much more damaging. And therefore, if something had to be leaked, they let Booth's now um, somewhat edited diary be that which was leaked. All right, now, uh, referencing the same situation uh, with uh, Isola and Booth leaving San Francisco, this comes from W.C. Jameson's book, John Wilkes Booth Beyond the Grave. Uh, this is referential material that he did not dig up himself. In other words, his own investigation. I'm not knocking it. It's just that it, it's Jameson um, referencing some other works. Uh, some of the work uh, is from Neff and Gutridge. Some of the work he's done is from uh, the book The Lincoln Conspiracy by uh, Balsiger and uh, Sellier. In June 1865, a scant two months following the assassination of Lincoln, two men came aboard the Mary Porter, a schooner that was docked in Havana, Cuba. The skipper for the 800-ton ship was Thomas Haggett. During the war, Haggett used the Mary Porter, um, using the Mary, Mary Porter, smuggled contraband through the Union blockades. When his home in New Orleans was burned to the ground by Union troops, Haggett and his wife moved aboard the ship. Mrs. Haggett, writing in 1898, stated that one of the men who arrived on board that Mary, uh, the Mary Porter was very haggard and emaciated and was suffering from a broken leg as well as mental strain. Haggett told his wife that the man was John Wilkes Booth and that he wanted him to have her cabin for a few days. Several days later, the Mary Porter arrived at Nassau in the Bahamas to deliver a load of sugar. Here the man identified as Booth left the ship, telling Mrs. Haggett that he was on his way to England. Before leaving... He presented her with a ring bearing a large diamond in a gold setting. Mrs. Haggett claimed that Booth died a natural death in England several years later. Uh, during August 1866, Lieutenant William M. Tolbert, an officer aboard the Confederate privateer Shenandoah, got into a heated discussion with a Southerner in a Calcutta, India bar. The Southerner claimed that he possessed information that Booth was alive and well and hiding in Ceylon. Booth was allegedly spotted in Ceylon on a number of other occasions over the years. That is the place to which Booth first went when in uh, <clears throat> South Central Asia. And from there he went into India. That, that would make perfect sense. And also with the, this, uh, the, the uh, tale of Booth being in uh, the Bahamas, that'll jive something with what Potter had dug up about where Booth might have been because Lola Alexander uh, set off to the Bahamas about this time. And they figured the only reason she would go to the Bahamas is to meet Booth because, again, you've got this whole British territory colonial thing happening because um, <clears throat> now you have John Wilkes Booth as John Byron Wilkes, and they think that she brought money down to him. And, of course, they probably got in a little bit of, you know, headboard banging. <clears throat> so whether he died in England, uh, that doesn't bear out, but that he did go into England several times and did take a wife who was a widow in England, Elizabeth Burnley. More about that later. So this story about mm, in June, quite possibly he was in the Bahamas. 
I'm sure Haggett must have even known of him or knew him because Haggett was um, a blockade runner. Uh, one interesting experience came from Andrew Jackson Donaldson, once a close companion of Booth. Donaldson claimed to have countered the assassin on a Pacific island in the late 1860s. Donaldson, who had served in the Army of the Confederacy, was working as first mate on a ship sailing from San Francisco to Shanghai. On arriving at the Palau Islands, that's P-A-L-A-U, some 600 miles east of the Philippines, Donaldson, along with several crew members, went ashore for water and supplies. During the process of obtaining needed supplies, Donaldson encountered five men and a woman, all Americans. The leader of the group advanced toward Donaldson and extended his hand in greeting. According to Donaldson, it was John Wilkes Booth. In an article that appeared in the St. Louis newspaper and quoted by George S. Bryan, Donaldson stated that, quote, there was no mistaking Booth's identity, end of quote. The man who Donaldson claimed was Booth asked the seaman not to tell anyone of his whereabouts for at least a year. Booth introduced the woman as his wife and said that the other four men were not aware of his identity. According to Donaldson, Booth told him that his escape had taken him to Mexico, South America, Africa, Turkey, Arabia, Italy, and China. In China, he claimed he played the role, the title role in Richard III before American residents and naval officers. On the island, Booth handled Donaldson a gold medal and asked him to deliver it to his brother Edwin. The same medal, according to Donaldson, had once been awarded to Edwin Booth by, quote, the citizens of New York, end of quote. Okay, we got that. He said August 1866. Oh, no, that, that was the, uh, the dust-up between uh, Tolbert and some Southerner in a bar. And uh, the story about Haggett and his wife seeing Booth in the Caribbean is quite possible, and would drive with some other accounts that seem plausible. The bit about August 1866 uh, if Tolbert's having this discussion with somebody who said Booth's in Ceylon, I mean, Booth didn't leave San Francisco with Azola until April 1868. Um, you know, in August 1866, Booth very well was stateside. What this would mean is that he slipped off to India and then came back. I don't know. The timing of that seems a little rough. The story by Donaldson seems plausible. The, the Palau Islands, which at that time was kind of, uh, it's 600 miles east of the Philippines. Um, it was kind of a British place that later turned into kind of a Spanish uh, holding. Their influence took over more in the, uh, I guess, the late 19th century. Anyway, uh, it, it was probably a stopping off point, no doubt about it. And here Donaldson runs into Booth and a handful of people. He says the other ones don't know his identity. Well, they probably did if that were the case. I mean, who knows? Uh, could Henson have been with him? Okay. Was Johnson with him? Probably not. I mean, he might have said something about him. There was a black guy there or something. Hard to tell. But I, I think the mystery remains what took place between April 1868 and Isola's return uh, in the fall of 1869. Uh, now, here's the story. I mean, is, was John Scott really killed? Quite possibly. Was Booth faking it for Isola's purposes? Maybe. That would mean that he got the crew in on this if, in fact, Scott was killed. And you never know with Booth. I mean, he was a manipulator and as, as an actor and a guy with a great personality and charisma. He probably could have talked the paint off a porch. I mean, it, it, all this is quite possible. But even his own son, Harry, does not believe his father died on that ship. And it would in, in, in documentation to the effect would say that Booth died in uh, probably around 1883. So there's some other examples for you. Um, to piece together what took place from the, from the uh, departure in San Francisco in April of 1868 and the return of Isola in the fall of 1869, who knows. We'll leave it right there. But now there are other, there are other items 
to the effect that Booth was on the move. And, and, and here's the point, very much not dead. All right, Martha Mills gets involved in this, another paramour, Kate Scott gets involved in this. But first what I want to do is go back to something that uh, Potter had written about Booth after the Garrett's Farm incident. All right, this is a letter that Potter wrote to um, Olroyd, who was the author of uh, Oldroyd Osborne, who was the author of uh, The Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. He writes, this is Potter writing to Oldroyd, I have set down my thoughts on the record for you regarding the pursuit of John Wilkes Booth, uh, William Watson, J.W. Boyd, and interesting in parentheses now, for Boyd, he's got Boyle. Now, was Boyd running around with a pseudonym? Uh, and the other smugglers uh, and the part played by Fred Potter in the whole affair. I know that you will find it interesting, and I can vouch for its truth. Fred is still living and is in good health. He lives on a farm near Galax in Grayson County, Virginia. His address uh, is in the care of Mr. and Mrs. Frank Bowman, I find. Fred worked with Earl uh, and me until General Wallace was appointed governor of New Mexico in 1880. He quit and went uh, back east. He was a good detective uh, and was then just 34, and we tried to get him to stay with us, but he decided to quit. He said that he was tired of always having to be afraid that he would, he would miss seeing something which might be the death of the general. All right, he moves on. Uh, I'm skipping a couple of graphs here. Uh, about Katie, meaning Kate Scott. She was born October 5th, 1837 or 1838 in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm not sure about that. I mean, Edinburgh is a town in Pennsylvania, but the, but the typewriting here is kind of smudged, overinked, if you will. And I don't know. Her father was John. Oh, here we go. Her father was John Scott and her mother was Hannah Gray Scott. Katie was sweet on Colonel Craig of Clarion, Clarion, Pennsylvania. And most everyone thought that they would marry. When Cal went back after his first enlistment, Katie went along as a nurse. Uh, but then she met John Wilkes Booth, and they became very close friends. Cal was jealous, and they quarreled. Then Cal returned to Clarion. He did not even uh, come to see Katie, Kate, but uh, went over to Greenville, and the following February married a Miss Elmira Craig instead of Kate. Kate was quite broke up about it. Kate is here uh, with me, with us now, and has been for several weeks. She has funny ways, even for a woman of 71. While she is here, she's, she can visit her daughter, which, might, uh, which seems to help. When she's in Pennsylvania, she stays with the Weavers. All right, blah, blah, blah. Now, you see, all right, here Katie's father is John Scott. Is that the same John Scott? We hear more about the father. Uh, he was named postmaster at Brookville, Pennsylvania, by General Grant in about 1870, and he continued for some time in that position. I've always wondered why General Grant felt it necessary to do that for a family so close to a Lincoln's assassin. Now, all right, if, if this John Scott is, is work, as a postmaster in 1870, he is not dead uh, uh, at sea. So there's another John Scott out there. As I told you, in Springfield, we trailed Booth up the Fredericksburg Road through Orange Courthouse to Swift Run Gap, where he, we lost him. Uh, we picked this trail up again in September in Harrisburg, but the trail was two days old. We followed him into New York City where we could find no further trace of him. We picked up information of him some months later, but we never caught up with him. I don't know what we would have done had we caught him since everyone thought him dead. Uh, Caleb, all right, that's not interesting to anyone for this purpose. And that's about it. All right. And then one other uh, letter that was written by Potter and this kind of just sums everything up 
In the late 1870s, we made an effort, this is Potter and his associates, to determine the route taken by Booth, Henson, and Johnson after they crossed the ferry at Port Royal. We knew when and how they had gotten to the ferry, but things had become confused after that. Conger and his party had followed three men in a cart from the ferry up the Fredericksburg Road and had overtaken them some distance from the ferry. But they concluded that it was not the right people because the man thought to be Booth did not have a mustache and other man, and the other man was not David Harold. Just how they had come to look for Harold is not known, but such was the case. Uh, at the time, they did not know that Booth had shaved off his mustache at Bud's house, so they were uh, looking for a man with a mustache. It is a sad fact that we quite often got tangled up in our own guesses, and I think uh, this was, and I think this was of those times. In any event, Conger and company surmised that they were following the wrong bunch, and they returned to the ferry and then started uh, on south again. So they had the guys, but didn't think it was uh, Booth and Henson. And why are we looking for Harold? Well, because supposedly Harold and Boyd had bolted from the National Detective Police Posse. Uh, Luther, his brother, and I followed the trail to Fredericksburg and were sure that it was Booth, Henson, and Henry Johnson that was ahead of us. We stopped in Fredericksburg to give our horses feed and grain and some sleep. When we found that it was not Booth that had been killed at Garrett's, it was too late to go back, and in fact we were ordered not to do so. Booth was dead. We were not to tamper with the story, at least not at that time. But after the death of Baker, someone decided to take a hand in discovering the truth. Much of the truth had leaked out, and the questions were being asked, which could lead to answers which the government and the bankers did not want known. Lou Wallace was at the time representing some New York bankers who were aware of the John B. Wilkes, who was trying to get funds released and was threatening to make loud noises if he did not get his money. So here's Booth beyond the grave telling everyone, if I don't get my money, then I'm going to start talking. The money, along with the interest, amounted to a pretty sum and could cause a great wrinkle in certain banks. It then became essential that the exact truth be determined, not for release to the public, but for the information of those in charge. We were sent out to investigate. Strangely enough, the trail, instead of being cold, had warmed up considerably. People who had refused to tell when, people who had refused to tell when were made our first excursion in 1865. Okay, this is, again, this is directly from what was written, and so it's a little bit, choppy in here, but people who had refused to talk, let's just say, when they made their first excursion in 1865, now remembered all about what had happened and were in most cases not reluctant to talk at all. The old days of suppression were gone. Some people were reluctant, those who had been directly involved. Uh, but even here, many were up in years of age and they thought, what, what the heck can they do to us now? So they told it all or most. They sat for hours and talked about the war. It seemed to make them feel good. John Rixey of Culpeper County told about the partisans in that area what had helped the Booth Party get across into the valley. Mosby had moved his partisans into position to help with the capture plot, and when Booth shot Lincoln, they decided to help his getaway. They picked up on the party near Fredericksburg and took them on their way. They took them on a path which led to Burr Hill, uh, and then on the south side of Clark Mountain to Orange Courthouse. Booth needed a doctor, and they got him one, a Quaker who would keep his own counsel, and he put a, a, a mache cast on Booth's leg. They then went on through Greene County and crossed the mountains to the Hawksbill Cave, that's Bear Hole Cave, which was also known as Bear Hole Cave, sorry, uh, where Booth and the party stayed for three days and two nights. It was in this cave where Booth buried a lot of bank papers which he needed to lay claim to for his bank accounts. These he retrieved in the early 1870s when he and Liz Burnley, Elizabeth Burnley, came to the U.S., John Rixey was one of the partisans who led the Booth party to the cave. 
the Linville Group, which is a town in Virginia right near all these uh, locations, uh, took over from there and, and took the party to the home of Lewis Pence near Bridgewater. Uh, Pence then took, on, took them on to Harper's Ferry. We got hold of some of the letters which Booth and Richard DeMille wrote on behalf of Booth uh, concerning the bank deposits. Some of the letters to McGill in Owensboro, Kentucky, and some were to Robert Watson in New Madrid, and that's in Missouri. Is it Missouri or Illinois? All right, nevertheless, it's along the Mississippi. We visited Watson and took some pictures of the house, the boats, and the area. Watson by this time knew that we were no threat to him, and he was less reluctant to talk with us. He took no formal statements. We took no formal statements, but we later wrote down our recollection of the conversations. Uh, what he told us merely confirmed what we already knew, and this is it in a nutshell. John B. Wilkes died in Assam, India, in 1883, on October 12th. We suspected... Uh, that he may have committed suicide to escape the pain, but that is mere speculation. One thing um, <clears throat> some say supports the idea is the date October 12th. At least twice before it had been reported that he died on October 12th, each in an earlier year and a different place. That, are, that is the reason that Wallace and company had wanted the master to be investigated, the matter to be investigated thoroughly. Booth had assumed the identity of another, which was John Byron Wilkes, and lived out his life in a haunted fashion, but he did live. He was always tortured by illness and financial problems while he owed, owned large um, amounts of money in America where it was totally unavailable to him. We retraced his route in our search, and it must have been a terrible ordeal on him, his leg broken and inflamed and very painful. He finally let it heal at the home of his former wife at Harper's Ferry. He then proceeded to see another sweetheart in western Pennsylvania, that would be Kate Scott, before he went on to New York, that would be Martha Mills, then to California with Isola and on to Ceylon. Whether he ever found any peace is doubtful, but that was consistent with the nature of the man. Uh, one comment aside from um, Martha Mills, about whom we'll, we'll talk in a second, but Lou Wallace got involved in this. This is the author of Ben-Hur. He was also a general. He served in the Civil War, and he got involved with unfreezing uh, Booth's assets, along with uh, Ulysses S. Grant. But what's interesting about Wallace being aware of what supposedly happened with Booth out in India. It said, as for the man who had assumed John Wilkes' identity, it was found that he was not a freeholder and his will could not be executed in India, which is one of the reasons why he had to get over here to a certain extent. Uh, and also apparently his wife uh, importuned Grant when he was on his worldwide uh, circumnavigational vacation around the world. Uh, she talked to him. But at any rate, uh, Wallace got involved with this, and it said, um, the case had been declared nulla bono in bonus cedra. In a word, Wilkes was bankrupt. Lou Wallace, demonstra demonstrably active in all this commotion over the death of a resumed Englishman in a far-off land, had the will probated through a state court in the United States. So there you go. Did Wallace, now remember, the novelist, savor a notion of an assassin exiled abroad, every's man, every man's hand turned against him? For at this very time, with Ben-Hur already behind him, Wallace had begun working, reworking the wandering Jew legend into his next literary success, The Prince of India. At any rate, he was instrumental in securing sworn statements that established the authenticity of the will. Forrester was a witness when John B. Wilkes signed it in Bombay, and he was now its executor. So, again, if Wallace, is it a coincidence that Wallace is writing about his fictional character, you know, coincidentally based 
on the life of John Wilkes Booth. And the will itself, uh, this is Nethan Gutridge, by the way, from uh, Dark Union. They found a legally certified copy, among other faded documents, in a Midwest County courthouse. It is dated September 12, 1883, and bids disbursement of a total exceeding $160,000. Other than Elizabeth Burnley Wilkes, his, quote, beloved wife and mistress, unquote, all named as principals legatees, pro uh, probably figure in the life of the actor John Wilkes Booth. They include Isola, Booth's first and perhaps only legal wife, and that's also kind of questionable, and their daughter, Ogarita, who was the mother of Isola Forrester, who wrote uh, this one-man act and also was the screenwriter and the journalist at the turn of the uh, 19th into the, into the 20th century. Kate Scott of Brooksville, Pennsylvania, and her daughter, Sarah Catherine. Nor was Ella Turner forgotten, Booth's lover who had tried suicide the morning after he murdered the president. And that she too had carried Booth's child on that long ago Easter weekend is indicated by the stipulation favoring Mary Louise Turner identified uh, as were Ogarita and Sarah Catherine as, quote, the natural heir of my body, unquote. Uh, fidelity is rewarded, $1,000 annually bequeathed to Henry Johnson, Booth's one-time valet, who had helped him escape, and to whom, quote, I owe my life. Uh, what went to Booth's other loyal companion in flight is not stated, but he is there too. Edward Hinson, one of the two witnesses, the cognominal alteration hardly less slight than the omission of the last name in the star signature of John Byron Wilkes. What does that all mean? Uh, Henson was there with him. Uh, from the moment he left uh, behind him uh, fleeing D.C. Don't know that he was with him. Don't know. Don't know if he's there uh, continually. Now, there's also, uh, Troy Cowan points out, that there seems to have been some kind of community of uh, former Confederates who didn't want to stay in, I guess, the United States and went over to India. Again, playing the British card here. And what was interesting is that it was so well known, at least to Booth and others who were involved on the dark side of that plot, that uh, they could go to England or one of their uh, colonies, with, and apparently without fear of extradition. What does that tell you about Britain's involvement, at least the money people in Britain? And again, I think this somewhat corroborates the fact that the order to hit Lincoln and Seward may have been instigated to a great extent by um, British money. And the connection with the Knights of the Golden Order, which, as I told you before, I wish I could you know, find the ligaments that tie those two together, and perhaps I will. But right now, the person with whom I'm dealing is uh, not answering my questions as I ask them. All right, now, Martha Mills. Again, to substantiate that Booth did not die in Garrett's barn. In 1928, Martha Mills, widowed and close to 90, was interviewed in Indianapolis by John C. Schaefer, editor-publisher of the Chicago Post, Indianapolis Star, and Rocky Mountain News. William W. Parsons of Terre Haute had briefed him on aspects of the untold Booth story, and with belief in the late educator's veracity, tempered by professional skepticism, Schaefer questioned Mills searchingly. What she told him conformed with what we had learned from other sources, but she added more about her last encounter with Booth. It had occurred six months after his supposed death. At his direction, they had met near the new Shakespeare Monument in Central Park, which the proceeds from the attendance uh, at his final New York stage appearance had helped fund, and they left for Canada where, quote, he had a power of attorney prepared for his business agent for the oil property, end of quote. Martha and John Wilkes Booth spent two weeks in Montreal while he waited for mail addressed to, quote, John Wilkes at a post office. And this is a quote. 
Those were idyllic days, and I never forgot them. End the quote. That's from Martha Mills. Schaefer found no reason to disbelieve any of this, but advised against publication. He, too, joined the tight-lipped uh, band, privy to secrets deemed most safe to divulge in the distant future, if at all. So now you have Martha Mills being involved with Booth after his supposed death. And six months after the fact, would have brought it to what? Probably October. So in October 1866, you have him in New York. I mean, this is all possible. Going down to the Caribbean, being in Pennsylvania, being in Canada, and then off to San Francisco. He was a busy boy. Now, lastly, about all this is an affidavit written by Kate Scott. All right, this is um, <clears throat> Kate Scott, who gave, if you will, this deposition to um, the author whom you've heard about before, Osborne Oldroyd. Uh, this was given October 27th, 1910, in Washington. Uh, she, was, all right, she was born not in Edinburgh, as I thought. I couldn't read it from the uh, typewriting. It was Evansburg. Doesn't that make things clearer? Evansburg, Pennsylvania. All right, she was born there October 5, 1837. So we're going to go through a whole lot of this stuff. Uh, but the bottom line was <clears throat> she was to be married to another um, who got wind of her mm, possible relationship with Booth, and he married someone else and kind of broke her heart. But here's what's interesting now about this John Scott situation. Her father was a John Scott, but he was a postmaster in uh, Brooksville or Brookville. Uh, Brookville, yeah. Brooksville is uh, 20 miles north of me. So that could not have been him. However, uh, let's pick it up. In the fall, my cousins, who were sea captains, came into port, one in Baltimore and the other in New York. They came to Brookville for the hunting of birds and deer, and I was so very glad to see them. They also had brought Mr. Booth with them, and I was not so sure that I was glad to see Mr. Booth. He and I uh, had seen too much of each other when I was in Washington, and I had come to decide that I could not capture the heart of Mr. Booth, for I did not believe that he really had a heart. He was such a gentleman and such a scoundrel at the same time. I really cared for him, but I knew that I could never receive from him his, the love that I longed so for, or longed for so, whatever, I don't know. Mr. Booth was investigating, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Booth was investing in oil speculations with Winston Weaver in Oil City and Meville, and this is in northwest Pennsylvania. And Mr. S Mr. Booth spent much of, t of the time in those places, but he returned by way of Brookville. He had business with my cousins also. Uh, my two cousins, whom I dearly loved, both of them, were quite dashing gentlemen and so handsome in their uniforms. They were both captains of ships of Canadian registry. Now, remember, the Indian Queen, which took Booth and Isola, uh, was a Canadian registry. I think they said Nova Scotia. John Evan Scott of Manchester, England, was captain of a ship for a Canadian firm, the same one for which his father had worked. John was with his father in 1832 when they had put into Havana, Cuba, in distress with the crew sick and several, uh, including the elder John Scott, dead of fever. John Evan had been on the ship, but also uh, but did not get the fever. The other cousin, John Celestina, had also been on the voyage and had been near death. Both were now masters of their own commands and doing quite well. Both were involved with blockade running, but we did not know it at the time. They spent two weeks at our home and had uh, splendid luck at hunting. The last week that they were there, Robbie Bernard, a boy from Brookville, who was now a government detective, came to Brookville and dropped in for a visit. We went to a church social together, and he asked me many questions about my cousins and was very suspicious of them. I thought at the time that he seemed a slight, uh, 
seemed a sly amount jealous. All right. He was a little bit jealous, but I now realize that it was official curiosity. But the bottom line is that this shows that the John Scott that was allegedly killed on the high seas was, in fact, her cousin, the son of her uncle. And so we'll move on. <clears throat> and, of course, Bernard, which she just mentioned uh, in his memoirs, said that he was in love with her and he knew that she had been jilted by her intended, let's just say, who went off and married someone else. He died in the war, by the way, so, you know, who, whoever he married obviously turned into a widow, but she felt, you know, responsible for that to a certain extent, etc., etc. Uh, let's pick it up, though, now after the assassination of Lincoln. This, again, is in Catherine Scott's affidavit given to uh, the author Oldroyd. Uh, after the assassination of President Lincoln, I could not believe that Booth had been involved, and yet I realized that he had been. He was such a calm and loving person, but he believed so deeply in the cause of peace and freedom. Then there was the story of his death, and I felt so sorry that so great a talent had been wasted. Then in July, I received a letter in handwriting that was most unmistakably his, asking me to see Winston Weaver and get from him an envelope which had been left with him a number of months before. He said that I should have it at our farm on September 15th. This is September 15th. 1865, and he would call for it. It was signed John Byron Wilkes. I did as he asked and waited in anticipation, fearing that it was a cruel hoax being perpetrated on me, but when the time came, he appeared. He was without his mustache, and his appearance was otherwise changed so that he looked completely different. When I expressed, expressed concern for his safety, he shrugged. Um, he shrugged it off, saying that he was, to the entire world, dead and buried, and that no one would recognize him. But to be further safe, since he knew that government detectives were following somewhere, he had sent his valet and another man, Henson, from Harrisburg on to New York, while he made his way to Brookville from where he would go on to Niagara Falls and cross into Canada. His leg was almost well, and he walked with only a slight favoring of the left foot. He rode a horse quite well with no problems of mounting or dismounting. Yeah, he was good at mounting. We spent the rest of the week on the farm, and I begged him to take, him, take me with him. He said he could not, but that he would send for me later. I wanted to believe this, and I told myself that he would, not, he would, but deep down in my heart, I knew that he wouldn't. But I did not hesitate to make myself believe him, for otherwise I would have wasted the few days that we would have together. He told me that he had made arrangements to go to India where he could live in peace. He told me that he had ample funds in the Bank of England and that his financial future was assured. I do not know what was in the envelope that I got from him. I got for him from Winston Weaver, but I know that it was important. He told me that he would meet Captain John Scott in Canada and that he would go to India on his ship. John Celestina had been arrested as having, uh, take, as having taken part in the conspiracy, but he had been released in July and had left the country. All right, now, supposedly, he did not leave the country. He just got out of Dodge, more or less, and set back up in New Orleans. Understandable. Now, uh, he, meeting John Scott in Canada, uh, okay, maybe, but he didn't leave from Canada. They left from San Francisco with his ship. Does it really matter? Okay, we're not going to worry about that. But it does at least prove the fact that John Scott, that was, like I said, killed on the high seas, uh, was in fact Kate Scott's cousin, the son of her uncle. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Um, 
All right. Uh, it's both John Scott and John Celestina had stood by with their ships to take Booth and his party out of the country. My lifelong friend, Robbie Bernard, had arranged for the arrest of my cousin, John Celestina. And then just a, a short sentence that says all. She wrote, such were the days. Uh, Celestina, again, nothing happened to him. Uh, Bernard professed all this love for Kate Scott, but, you know, and he said uh, they, he caused a quarrel with her because he did not want to subject her to the life that Lafayette Baker's wife, Jenny, had gone through uh, with um, so many wanting to kill her husband. Okay, and then there's, there's all kinds of conjecture about Jenny, but here we go. Um, I received letters from, from Booth after he got to England and after he was in India. He died in the early 1880s, but try as I have, I have not been able to find what became of my cousin John Scott. I have written to several members of his crew, but to no avail. Mm -hmm. I would like to know if he is still alive and where he is or if he is dead, the details of his death. Well, first of all, Booth could have told her that, and he didn't, right? I mean, you can just infer the fact that if she was wondering what happened, Booth could have told her the truth. Was he really dead? Maybe he wasn't. Maybe that was part of the fakery also. Maybe the whole thing was a ruse to make Isola believe that there was a mutiny and Scott was dead and Booth was dead and she was cast adrift. Could that whole thing have been, quote, a theater production conducted by Booth? It's entirely possible. But no matter what, it doesn't look like she ever found what happened to her cousin. So that whole scenario out in the Pacific just leads to more questions than it does answers. All right, when I visited my daughter in, in October of 1906, I found that she had talked with Cousin John Celestina when she and her husband were in New Orleans, so there you go. He was healthy and had a family and was living the life of a gentleman. He had given up the sea after his release and had bought a country home and settled down to the quiet country life. Lewis Pence lived in Virginia in Rockingham County on a farm along Smith's Creek. When Booth had escaped from Washington, he had made his way to a cavern in Greene County, and that would be Bears Hole Cavern or Hawksbill, I mean Cave, or Hawksville Cave, or Hawksville Mountain, and had spent a week or so there. They had gone uh, to the home of Lewis Pence, and Booth had recovered further there. He had been taken by Pence to his farm in Harpers Ferry, where he had stayed for some time before heading for Canada. Pence had been uh, handsomely paid uh, for his service, and he used the money to rebuild the barn, which had been burned by Union troops when they moved down the valley. I do not think that Pence was any part of the conspiracy. Well, he was, and so what? I was never a believer, well, not the direct conspiracy to kill Lincoln. It was, you know, accessory after the fact, I think you would call it. I was never a believer in war and killing. I have all my life uh, opposed uh, organized warfare as criminal folly. I, to this day, believe that the War of the Rebellion was fought for purely political purposes and for the financial gain of persons who found it good for business. <laughs> you imagine this? Can you, I mean, here's a woman who gets it in 1906. The birds are very excited about this, as you can tell. <laughs> they don't like it. I put them in another room so I wouldn't hear them. All right, we'll keep moving. Uh, yeah, and if you're looking for something like really serious out of me, I mean, you know, I, I don't conduct this thing like this. I mean, after all this time, I do what I want to do. I have my birds. So, you know, that's part of the deal. So, you know, for all those who are like, you know, scholarly sticks up the uh, rear end, you know, too bad. Kiss my purple butt. All right, going on after that public service announcement. <laughs> all right. All right, now, so here she gets it, that war is for financial gain by... The elite. Uh, ways of peaceably setting the dispute could have been found. I was a member of that organization known as the Order of the Tear, an organization devoted to the ending of war because of the attitude of the men with whom I was forced to associate. Uh, okay, and she also was involved in an orderly resistance to the draft. 
She said she went out as a nurse purely for humanitarian reasons and left because of the attitude uh, of other uh, people in the service. I am, I suppose, as one very near to me at the time, accused of being a woman's rights man, one who believes in equality for women in every way. I do not believe that women exist for the pleasure of men, but rather that men and women exist for the mutual pleasure of them both. I find the over... I find the overbearing and self-justifying attitude of most men disgusting and crude. If that makes me a woman's rights man, so that, so, then so be it. Um, wouldn't that be a woman's rights woman? All right. The day must surely come when women will vote, hold political office, and enjoy all the freedoms which men today enjoy. No longer will she be looked upon as a child-bearing machine produced for the service and pleasure of men. Man, you've got to love this woman. She was like so together. Unbelievable. Right? 190, what was it? We say she wrote this at 1910. Good for you. We who resisted the draft did not, uh, did not uh, do it as traitors to our country, but rather as patriots to a new and peaceful country. The government looked upon us, even though they did not know who we were in most instances, as copperhead traitors. But we were nothing of the sort. The draft resistance was in both the North and the South and was based on good humanitarian motives. Is it so glorious to give birth to sons who then go off to battle and are killed? or just as tragic, dismembered in body and mind? When are we going to become civilized and act like it? Sorry, darling, Miss Scott, ain't going to happen, never will happen. And she writes uh, in closing, My life is almost over, and if there is an epitaph which I would like to have placed on my headstone, it would be, she was a woman's rights man. (laughs) But since I know that my family would never allow it, let there be no epitaph at all. Subscribe and sworn before me, a Justice of the Peace, this 27th day of October, 1910. And there you have it. So if you want to straighten out a chronology of what Booth was up to, just as it pertains, really, to the, to the last half of 1865, seen in the Bahamas in June 65, completely possible. Kate Scott sees him in September of 1865, completely possible. Uh, Martha Mills is with Booth in New York City and Canada, October 1865. Completely possible. And Lola uh, Alexander goes down to see him, and I would really think to bring him money and other items, in December of 1865. All completely possible. So that's going to close it up for um, this Mystery History Theater. I was thinking about doing a postscript, and, and I, I will, but I hope you have enjoyed it, or at least joined parts of it. Uh, to me, there's just so much more. This would never end. If I had encountered this kind of information when I was in my 20s, I probably would have spent the time to research everything and come out with something. At this stage of game, new. Uh, So that's been it, and uh, we'll see you next time, if there is a next time.